Good morning, Cartwright. It's wonderful to be with you here today on this glorious day. It is my pleasure this morning to introduce our guest preacher. He is the principal of Presbyterian College. Um, how many of you know of Presbyterian College? Good. Where is it? Fantastic. Thank you. So, uh, he, he is the principal at um, Presbyterian College in Montreal, and recently he has been overseeing some fantastic new educational opportunities and venues. The renewal of congregations, the bringing of mentors to uh, Montreal at PC College to help uh, with the uh, progression of students, and all of this has started to bear some great fruit. And so we're very, very delighted to see uh, Roland in role and to see his creativity and his contributions in this special way. Uh, he's not my big brother. When he comes up here, you're, you're going to see a little bit of a resemblance between us. Uh, we're follically challenged, and, <laughs> and uh, he's much taller and, and carries a, a real presence with him. Roland, would you come up and let us pray for you? And, and thank you. It's delightful to have you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pour out your spirit upon this, your servant, Roland, that he may share with us today a word, a word that he has prepared but is your word, Lord. May it move in our hearts. May it challenge us. May it help us to grow in faith through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I am glad to see a few hands uh, of those who know of the Presbyterian College. Uh, I do feel like I should be taking this opportunity to say a little bit about the college, and, but I'm not actually going to do that. The only one thing I will say is that your Glenn Fox uh, is a, a member of our Board of Governors now, so he's actually in the process of learning more about the college, so eventually you might be able to ask him questions and that he could answer about <laughs> the Presbyterian College. So we're really delighted to have Glenn uh, on the board uh, of governors. Uh, instead of talking about the college, I actually just want to say a word of thanks to Courtright. Um, you don't know this, um, but we effectively, my family and I, uh, were members of Courtright for about, I think it was about a year and a half uh, during the pandemic. So it was March 2020, we were there, um, and it was a Sunday morning, we're like, where, where are we going to church? What are we going to do? Um, and I'd heard Courtright was going to stream something, so we watched Courtright, um, and then we stayed for, I don't know, I think it was just under a year and a half. So every Sunday morning, my wife, our three teenagers, uh, gathered in the living room in our pajamas, I think, um, and, uh, and we joined you for worship, and we were blessed. And we, uh, I'd known Alex, uh, your former pastor, before that, but we got to know a little bit more about Alex, got to know the voice of Justin and Allison especially, and we as a family just were blessed by the worship of this congregation, and uh, we're just so grateful for that. So thank you to Courtright. I think my kids know some of your kids are grandkids too through Ontario Pioneer Camp, so I feel like there are connections here, and uh, it's good to be with you. So thank you for welcoming me. Um, we're going to read uh, scripture. And uh, it is from the Gospel of Mark, the fifth chapter. We're going to read verses 1 to 20. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit 
came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Thanks be to God for his word. The townspeople know all about this man. At one time, in fact, he probably lived there among them, growing up as a boy in their town. Maybe over time, they began to see changes in him, changes that may have unfolded over months and then years. Perhaps they agonized over his decline. Perhaps they tried to help him and his family as, as he began to really struggle. Nevertheless, he slipped slowly out of their community onto its periphery. So now he lives among the tombs. He lives in the wilderness on the farthest margins of human community, alienated from them. Now he's a picture of what it looks like when someone reaches the bottom of a difficult, difficult spiral to the point of, of harming others, to the point of harming himself. One of the heartbreaking elements of this story is that this man seems to have lost his name. We know he's called Legion in the story, and of course we know that that name is actually a refusal of his true name and his true identity. It's a denial of who he is. Legion is only the name of the destructive power that has its control over him. We probably shouldn't be too quick to leave aside this question of his name. It seems to me that a part of our response to this text should be precisely to slow down and to insist that this man has a name. 
Who he is might be hidden from us. It might have been hidden from many of his contemporaries. But that is not to say that this man is without an identity. It would be to read far too much into the story to say that he doesn't know his own name or that he doesn't know his own purpose, his own identity. Reading this story, although we can gloss over it quickly, we need to slow down and stop and say he has a name, even if we don't know it. So we back up in the narrative. We know that Jesus has just crossed the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. They disembark from their boat into this wilderness region. Almost immediately, they encounter this man who lives among the tombs. He approaches them, he approaches Jesus, he throws himself at the feet of Jesus, and he says, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you not to torture me. He or they know who Jesus is. They know Jesus' name, they know Jesus' power, and knowing his name and his power, they also resist Jesus. Don't destroy us. Don't give this man back to himself. We claim him for ourselves. Jesus then asks that question, that most important question we've already alluded to. What is your name? With the only response being that hateful suffocating of the man's own name. We are legion. In reply to that question, and then in reply to Jesus' command that the impure spirit come out of him, Jesus gets only this whining reply from the demons. They are intent only on saving themselves. Send us into the pigs, they snivel. Don't destroy us, Jesus. For whatever reason, Jesus grants the request. And in the next moment, we see in the clearest terms, what had been their destructive intent from the beginning. And the unclean spirits came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank and were drowned in the sea. In the mad rush of pigs down the embankment, in their rush to their deaths, we see what had been happening to this man over so many years. It seems to me that it is human nature, or perhaps it is only modern human nature, that we are preoccupied with chaos. It's like we can't turn our our eyes away from spectacle or violence. In the classic sense, we can't stop ourselves from looking over into the opposite lanes of the highway to look at that car crash. We can't stop scrolling through reels that repeat footage of slip-ups, accidents, CNN was only the first of many media organizations to capitalize on this obsession of ours and to feed on it, to make money on it, beginning back in the 80s and 90s. In 2024, we are as preoccupied with chaos as humans have ever been. I can only imagine what it would have been like if this story had happened in the present day. The townspeople would have had their cell phones out, taking video of those pigs rushing down the cliff. Some would have live-streamed it for their friends on Facebook. Some would have created reels, others would have created memes. It took me a while to come up with these, but I thought of hashtag Garrison Porkfest, or (laughs) hashtag the day pigs flew. (laughs) 
who doesn't want to be great at creating memes? I would love to be, I'm just way too slow. Um, I have my, to use another cultural reference, I have my George Costanza moments, you know? Well, that's what I should have said, uh, but I'm just too slow. But if we are too transfixed with that momentary destruction, we will miss something that's happening off to the side. The man who has lost his identity, the man whose name we had forgotten, the man who was struggling in such deep ways, there he sits with the disciples of Jesus. Just a few minutes later, by the time the townspeople arrive, it will be possible for the gospel writer to say, and when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Never mind the disaster with the pigs. Put away the cell phone. Not everything is there for us to consume and to share. Just look for a moment at this astonishing scene. Perhaps even go there and sit beside him. Discover that he has been given back to himself. Ask him what his name is. As I reflected on this text from Mark chapter 5 this week, my mind was taken back to an experience of some years ago in our neighborhood of Notre Dame de Grasse in Montreal. There was a woman who often walked in our neighborhood and behaved in what I saw as strange ways. She would frequently be walking in the middle of the street. She would shout constantly, go to new hope, go to new hope. I would see her muttering, kicking garbage cans, kicking recycling bins. She seemed to me to be angry. I was wary of her. We all, given our context and our lives, are wary of some. Perhaps there are those in our world who are rightly wary of me. But after seeing her for a number of months, it might even have been a couple of years, one day we met on the sidewalk on the street uh, where we live. As we passed each other, I said kind of cautiously, Hi, how are you? She turned and replied to me, fine, thank you, how are you? And she added, how are those kids of yours? Her name was Joyce. It turned out that New Hope was the name of a senior citizen center that she attended, which was housed in a local Presbyterian church. I became minister of that church a few years later, and a couple of times a week, Joyce would come to my office door and say, how are you? How are the kids? We talk about everyday things. Very often, it is not the struggling person who has no name. It's just that I don't bother to ask. The next words we read in the gospel are designed to surprise us. These words about the townspeople they were afraid. And that's even before they've heard the full story. Once they've heard the whole story, we read, then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, for they were seized with great fear. So Jesus got into the boat and returned. There are a lot of challenges for understanding this story. We are probably far from understanding the experiences of this man, far from understanding this community, far from understanding the original cultural context. 
It seems to me that one of the most obvious challenges of the story is the seeming impossibility of the healing itself. And I want to stay with this for a few minutes this morning. As we listen to this story with modern ears, as we filter it through 21st century minds, some of us are probably asking ourselves, is it really possible that this man in such a desperate state could be healed just at a word of Jesus? It is such a dramatic and impossible turnaround and healing. And that's to say nothing of the complications of the demons and a huge herd of pigs destroyed. Yes, of course, we are followers of Jesus. We trust him. We believe in him. And yet, underneath our faith, there are frequently lingering doubts about these kinds of displays of Jesus' power. Is this really possible? Did he do this? As he asks these questions, perhaps we are reading the impossibility of such things in our world back into the narrative. In some ways, the easiest thing for us to do when these questions come up is just to distance ourselves from the whole thing. Just get some distance from the miracle. Basically, we kind of send Jesus away in the same way that the townspeople did. We wave goodbye as Jesus rose away, and we ignore what happened. Jesus, please, not too close, just give us a little bit of space. Then we can come back to our more comfortable and settled points of view about what is and isn't possible in the world. But the question of Jesus and the question of his power isn't one that we can put off. The gospel writer is confronting us with precisely this question. In chapter 4, we see Jesus calming the storm, the seas, the waves, just by speaking to them. Later, in chapter 5, we see uh, Jesus raising a girl to life. We hear the story of healing of a woman who was bleeding. And this story, the healing of the man among the tombs, is of one piece with that whole narrative. It's a section of text where the grace and power of Jesus is displayed and leaves people astonished, maybe even afraid, confused. But what's obvious is that the gospel writer is pointing to this first Jewish, century Jewish man and is saying that through him, God is doing something confounding, something impossible. In Jesus, God is reaching out to those who have been made nameless by their pain. In Jesus, God is bringing restoration and wholeness. In Jesus, God is reaching the marginalized, going to them in order to bless and heal. Yes, he is a healer, says the gospel writer. Yes, he transforms lives. Yes, he gives us back our true selves. Yes, he sets us back among his people. But we might still wonder. We might still doubt. Now, for those of us who continue to face our doubts, I want to suggest that maybe we can be helped by realizing that Jesus' healing today can come through all kinds of means. Maybe for those of us who doubt, I include myself in that group, maybe it's easier for us to link the healing power of Jesus with forms of healing that make more sense to us. It would still be really complicated, 
But if we're to take this approach, we would say sometimes Christ's healing comes through therapy. Sometimes Christ's healing comes through friends who love and care for us and know our name. Sometimes Christ's healing comes through natural remedies or pharmaceutical products. We tend, in general, to trust these ways of healing in our world. They make sense to us. Maybe, just maybe, it will help us address some of our doubts and questions about Jesus' healing by seeing that Jesus is also at work in these more conventional ways that we see and understand and in many ways accept. Even here, though, it's complicated, as I say. Our culture will be resistant. There are some very old and very easily dualisms, we could say, that play into that resistance, like this. Science is on one side. Spirituality is on the other. Keep them apart. Medicine is on one side. Faith is on the other side. Keep them apart. Pharmaceutical products are one thing. Prayer is another thing. Keep them apart. The one offers factual, actual healing. The other might offer personal consolation. That resistance is expressed like this in its simplest form. It was the medical treatment that provided healing. Jesus had nothing to do with it. In response to this, in response to this challenge, I think we have to live into the realization that the whole creation is given by the grace of God in Jesus. As the writer of John's Gospel puts it, through Jesus all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Or as Paul puts it in Colossians, in him all things were created. In him all things hold together. So by faith, we want to insist on another framing of faith and medicine, spirituality and healing. If ever healing comes through chemotherapy or antidepressants, that healing comes by the grace of Christ. If ever healing comes through the gifts and materials of creation, that healing is by the grace of Christ. If ever healing comes through human conversation and relationships and wise therapy, that healing is by the grace of Christ. That doesn't mean we have to be uncritical or naive about different medicines or therapies or even have a simplistic idea of what healing is, but we can't allow these old dualisms to shape our ideas of God's work in the world. Jesus is at work in our lives and in the world through the stuff of creation. And it seems to me that this means we can use the word miracle for things that happen just as a result of cause and effect in our world. Even these everyday means of healing, those ways of healing that we're more likely to accept and acknowledge, they are no less amazing, no less a gift, no less a work of Jesus, no less a miracle than any supernatural moment of healing. I think we all know this. In our hearts, in our souls, in our minds, 
we know that everyday healing is a gift, a miracle, a grace. And when we experience this kind of healings, or when we see it in other people's lives, there is astonishment, there is hope, there is gratitude. Of course, we need to say, we must say, that the one who is Lord of creation can also act in direct and supernatural ways to transform and to heal. We still need to interrogate what healing is. We shouldn't have simplistic ideas, but we know that God can work directly in that way. But would it come as a surprise to discover that Jesus, through whom we have the gift of bodies, this Jesus through whom we have the gift of minds within bodies, this Jesus who sets us in relationships of friendship, touch, dialogue, would it come as any surprise that God in Christ, who gives the gift of creation, would love to bless us and heal us and restore us through the stuff of creation. I think that's precisely what we need to say, at least it's what I want to say, that God gives the gift of this world, this creation, our embodied existence as a gift. God has entered this world this physical world in Christ, embracing our embodied nature. God is present to us in and through creation by the Spirit in Christ. And it's precisely here that we can say that through this world, he touches us, he heals us, he restores us. Where are we in all of this? We may not have known the kind of grief and suffering that this man knew. Some of us might have known it, ourselves or in our family. But all of us have had our wilderness experiences. Every one of us has had our moments of grief and pain and sickness. Moments when we don't feel at all like ourselves. When we feel like we are even losing ourselves. We know those we love who have had this same experience. And what is the gospel for us in these moments? What is the good news for our world? Perhaps it is this, that Jesus is rowing the boat toward us. That Jesus is putting his own arms to the oars pressing the bow of the boat through the waves toward us. That he's coming to us with his friends. He's climbing out of the boat with them. He's walking up the hill among the tombs. He sees us, and he asks us our name. And when we don't exactly know who we are, he comes to give us back to ourselves. He comes to us in and through the gifts of creation to heal our relationships, to give us a sense of purpose, to remind us of our capacity to love and to be loved, to allow each one of us to inhabit our limited bodies in hopeful ways. The good news 
is that he is coming for the healing of the world. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your people and tell them how much the Lord has done for, your, for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And the people were amazed. The words of a worship song come to my mind or came to my mind as I came to the end of my own reflections on this. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. That is who he is. Amen.